going to turn to the Song of Solomon, as I said. We're going to turn to chapter 2, and we'll commence reading at the opening verse of the chapter. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon, and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love till he please. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a rower, a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds is come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. O my dove, thou art in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs. Let me see thy countenance, let me hear thy voice, for sweet is thy voice, and thy countenance is comely. Take us, the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He feedeth among the lilies. Until the day break, and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe, or a young heart, upon the mountains of Bether. Just ending our reading at the end of that second chapter of the Song of Solomon. My text is found in verse 8, and I will particularly concentrate on the first expression in the verse. But I'll read just the whole verse again. It says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Last week, we saw the intense desire that the church has to experience personally the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is no wonder that the church has such a great longing. To know the love of Christ is to know the greatest love that the world has ever experienced or that it ever will experience. The hymn writer said, There is no love like the love of Jesus, never to fade or fall, till into the fold of the peace of God he has gathered us all. Now in our text, in verse 8 of Uh, chapter 2 of the Song of Solomon, we have another aspect of the divine bridegroom brought before us, and that is his voice. The bride says, the voice of my beloved. She almost seems to leap for joy as she recognizes his voice. The picture presented to us is a very powerful picture, and we want to think about the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ in this message. And the first point I want to make is this. The voice of Christ is a recognizable 
voice. Uh, That is implied in the bride's excitement and indeed we might say in her surprise. Uh, uh, She uh, she says, uh, the voice of my beloved. And uh, while the, the exclamation mark isn't in the original, we could easily see why it's there. Because there is excitement. Uh, there is attention drawn. And uh, the bride is calling out, it's the voice of my beloved. And she has no doubt that the voice that she hears is the voice of her beloved. And I may say to you that the voice of our Saviour is a recognisable voice and it is recognised by his people. Take, for example, in John chapter 10, uh, where the Lord Jesus Christ says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. So when he says, My sheep hear my voice, he doesn't mean they hear it in the sense that it goes in one ear and out the other. What he's saying, they hear it, they understand it, they rejoice to hear it, they respond to it. And he says, I know them. And the idea behind the word know is to acknowledge them. When we respond to the voice of Christ, he acknowledges us. He acknowledges us as his own. And uh, there's a tremendous illustration given in the biblical illustrator uh, about this point. Uh, An American was traveling in Syria and he saw three shepherds, native shepherds, and they were bringing their flocks to the same brook. And the flocks there all drank together. And then after some time, one of the shepherds called out, Mina, Mina. And uh, that's the Arabic for follow me. Immediately, his sheep came uh, out of uh, the, the common herd and they followed him up to the hillside. The next shepherd did the same and his sheep went away with him. The man didn't even stop to count to make sure that every one of the sheep uh, was there. And then the traveller thought, let me try my hand at that. And he turned to the third shepherd and he said, just give me your turban and your crook and see if they will uh, not follow me uh, as, as soon as uh, they would follow you. So he put on the shepherd's dress and he called out, Mina, Mina. But not one of the sheep moved. You see, as the Bible puts it, as Christ put it, they know not the voice of a stranger. That American uh, who was visiting there, to those sheep, he was a stranger. When the, uh, the, the call of the world comes, when the devil seeks to tempt us, when false religion would draw us away from the Saviour, that is as the voice to God's people of a stranger. And what this means in practice is that God's people will not be deceived, ultimately not be deceived by false teachers. The Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. Uh, they may praise Christ as a fine person, But you put it before them, Jesus Christ is God, equally God with God the Father, and they will try to prove to the difference. You might not be able to answer them in the argument. Uh, They may have it all rehearsed. I remember a man coming to our youth fellowship when I was a young person many years ago, 
And he had been working alongside the Jehovah's Witness, Witness and he had discovered that Jehovah's Witness had a little guidebook in, I think, his pocket. And he slipped his hand one day into the man's pocket and he got the guidebook and he saw all the catchphrases and all the arguments that they could use. And he decided to take that Jehovah's Witness away from the arguments, take him onto other ground. And the man was lost when you took him away from the beaten track. But we may be, uh, we may be unable to, to answer every point, but yet, if we're really saved, deep down we know that's not right. Uh, we, we will never accept that Jesus Christ is less than equal with the Father and less than equal with the Holy Spirit. The Mormons might come to your door. They may try the same technique. Uh, or the followers of Islam may come to your door. And you also have others uh, inside the, the so-called Christian church. There was a bishop of Durham, Dr. David Jenkins. And he called the resurrection a conjuring trick with bones. It is no conjuring trick with bones. A very leading figure at one time inside the World Council of Churches was Dr. Nels Ferry. And Dr. Nels Ferry said that Jesus Christ was the son of a German soldier. said there was a group of German soldiers around Nazareth and Mary had become pregnant because of that. In other words, denying that Jesus Christ was virgin born and that he was the son of God and not the son of Joseph, or the son of a German soldier. Now, when those arguments are placed before us instinctively, when we're saved, we say, that's the voice of a stranger. That is not the voice of God speaking to us. That is not the voice of the scripture. And so uh, we listen and uh, we say, Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the scripture, was born in Bethlehem, he was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He performed mighty miracles. He raised the dead. He walked on the Sea of Galilee. He cast out evil spirits. He laid down his life a ransom for many on Calvary's cross. He rose again triumphant the third day. He showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. And 40 days later, a time of probation, a time of proving, 40 days later, as the disciples were gathered on Mount Olivet. As they looked up into the sky, they saw him ascend. And they were told by the angel, this same Jesus, whom you have seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And they went out and they preached Christ after a period of 10 days when the Spirit of God came down and they won multitudes to Christ and the gospel spread. It spread to Europe. It spread to America and we have the truth, the whole truth, in the word of God. Yes, my sheep, hear my voice. It's a recognizable voice. And we will not recognize a stranger. We will not follow the stranger. May I say concerning that voice that it speaks pardon to us. That was one of the things I emphasized last week. Where uh, the, the bride says to the bridegroom or concerning him, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. I put it before you that this is not carnal language. I illustrated it by the prodigal 
and the kiss of the Father, showing forgiveness, showing pardon, showing that the Son was fully accepted and that he was part of the family. Well, the voice of Christ, it speaks pardon. It speaks peace to our souls. The hymn writer said, Peace, perfect peace, in this dark world of sin, the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. But then also, that voice speaks love to our hearts, tells us that Christ loves us. The Apostle Paul said, the Son of God, and he added, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you read the account of the trial of Christ, when you read of his agonies and anguish in Gethsemane, when you read of his betrayal, when you read of his desertion by his apostles, when you read of his scourging, his rejection by the people, and his crucifixion, you can see what tremendous love lay in the heart of Jesus Christ. You read the scriptures, you see this, you draw near to the Lord, and his voice speaks sweet love to your heart. It also speaks assurance to us. You know, when you read 1 John 5 and verse 13, you find John writing to people who are saved. And he says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. And he adds, That ye may know that ye have eternal life. Now, implied in that statement is the thought that you can be saved and lack assurance. And that's very clearly set out in our Westminster Confession of Faith. There are those who have preached falsely, uh, and it's contrary to experience, and it's contrary to the Word of God. They've preached falsely. If you don't know you're saved, you can be sure you're not saved. That is wrong. That is wrong and hurtful to tender hearts. You may be saved and not know it. And that's implied in John's statement. He says, I'm writing to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know. So in other words, you might not know. And he's saying, I've written this to help you to gain assurance, to know that you're saved, and to reinforce your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Bible, the Bible which speaks of Christ. It is the Lord's word to us. Jesus Christ, we say, is the word incarnate, the word in flesh. Uh, The Bible is the word in written form. And it speaks assurance to the people of God. It speaks hope to the people of God. In Psalm 85 and verse 8, the psalmist says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak for, listen to these beautiful words. He will speak peace unto his people and to his saints. That's so sweet. When the Lord as you're going through a time of tribulation and trouble and doubts and fears, when the Lord suddenly comes and he speaks peace to your wounded spirit. We need to hear that voice every morning, every evening, and throughout the day. And I believe we will hear it as we spend time in his presence. Don't don't curtail your time of prayer, unless it's absolutely necessary, and very rarely does that happen. Don't curtail your time of prayer. Don't trim it in order to 
go about something, some other task. Martin Luther said he had so much to do, he would never get it done if he didn't spend three hours in prayer. You know what we would say? We would say, I have so much to do. I'll never get it done if I spend three hours in prayer. See, our priorities are different from the priorities of the great German reformer. But then we can say that the voice of the Lord is a very strong voice. He's not effeminate. When the Lord speaks, when he sees evil, he speaks firmly and strongly. He says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And he describes a series of things that were evil in their lives. And he, uh, he sets each one up with, Woe unto you, woe unto you, woe unto you. But then it's also a very tender voice. It's not effeminate, but it's tender. There's strength, but there's love in that voice, as I've indicated. After Christ rose from the dead, there was Mary, and she was troubled. She spoke to the angels, they've taken away my Lord, I know not where they have laid him. And a friendly voice spoke to her. She didn't turn round at first. It said one word that showed the tenderness of the heart of the Savior. He said, Mary. And immediately she knew. She knew. And she turned to him and she said, Rabboni, which means my master. And she wanted to cling to him. He said, touch me not. I have not yet ascended to my father, your father to my God and your God. Oh, what tenderness there was in the voice of Jesus Christ. I say to you, if you're a child of God, be sure not to slacken in your daily devotions, lest you miss that delightful voice that has so much to say to comfort you and to guide you in life. But then the second point I want to make is this. The sound of Christ's voice means that he's not far away. Here is uh, the bride uh, in our text. She says, the voice of my beloved. And the next statement she makes is, behold, he cometh. There's a translation of the Hebrew uh, into the Greek language called the Septuagint. It's called because of the fact that approximately uh, 70 scholars translated the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. And that's where the word Septuagint comes from. Well, in the Septuagint, the translation has this force. And I'm not saying that it's an infallible translation, but the idea is he has arrived. The voice of my beloved, he has arrived. He's here. You think of what it's like, you know, with children. Friends are coming to visit. And they're friends that the children want to see. Sometimes children don't want to see some of the visitors that come. Uh, and they say, oh, no. And, uh, they're very poor at disguising uh, their feelings, children. Uh, and I'll give you a little example. Uh, it's not, not to do with people arriving, but uh, when we were, uh, when Jane and Johnny were with us and the children, we were in what you call the parking lot. We call it a car park, but that's neither here nor there. And the GPS was giving guidance to Johnny. He didn't need any because he was just stopping in the car park and uh, the, the voice of a lady came out uh, and, and it just spoke 
some direction that, that actually wasn't accurate to uh, the situation we were in. And Noah, who was in the back of the car, he immediately says, Idiot! <laughs> the woman was no idiot. <laughs> but it was, it was so spontaneous. I, I've chuckled to myself more times uh, when I thought of that, as if the woman was in the car giving wrong directions. Personally in the car, Noah says, Idiot! <laughs> well, uh, the, you know, the, the, the children will express themselves. And when they're looking for somebody they want to see, They'd be running to the window and they'd be running to the front door and they'll check, uh, have these friends come? And they think they will never come. And then it happens. They see the car pulling into the driveway and immediately they're opening the door and they're shouting in, they're here, they're here, they have arrived. Well, that is the kind of joy that we have depicted here. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, he's here. And the bride elaborates on her thoughts uh, in this verse, uh, telling us that the beloved has come leaping upon the mountains and skipping upon the hills. Now, mountains and hills suggest to us great difficulties. We might think of Mount Everest. It rises over 9,000 metres, over 29,000 feet into the sky. I think it was about four years ago uh, I was in Nepal. uh, And you know, I never saw the mountains. It was misty. And uh, as far as I was concerned, the mountains of Morn in County Down that we saw from our window in Kilkeel were higher than Mount Everest. Uh, But it's not true. It's only 3,000 feet uh, high. Whereas Mount Everest is 29,000 or over 29,000 feet high. And on top of that, eight of the ten highest mountains are situated in Nepal. So, so when we read of mountains and hills, we may think of the enormous difficulties that lay in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ when he came into this world to save us from our sins. He had to come in the most humiliating way. He who made the the heavens and the earth, the sun and moon and the stars and all the creatures, he had to be born of a woman. He had to be born of a sinful woman. He had to uh, be placed in her arms, cradled in her arms, cradled in the arms of Joseph. He had to be carried about, brought into the temple at 40 days old for the purification Uh, of his mother, and he had to lead a spotless life. What a mountain that is. It's a great mountain to you and me, because we just can't do it. With the best intentions in the world, we fail. Even as Christians, we fail. Christ could not fail in one point, in thought or word or deed. He could not fail, or everything would have been lost, and he would have been lost. But he never failed in one detail. And then he had to bear the judgment of God against his people's sin. He had to die on that cruel cross. And then, without the aid of man, he had to leave a guarded tomb, guarded by soldiers who risked death if he escaped. If the stones rolled away, 
If the body's not in the tomb, those soldiers risk death. And yet Christ had to come forth uh, out of the tomb. And just as the bridegroom is shown leaping upon the mountains and skipping upon the hills, indicating that nothing could stand in the way of his coming to his bride, so we might say nothing but nothing could stop the Lord Jesus Christ from coming to save us from our sins. While it was enormously difficult, far greater than the creation of sun and moon and stars and so on, we could say that in a sense, and it's only in one sense, Christ made light of it because his love to us was so great. He could not be stopped. He had to go on. And may I say as well, nothing can stop the Lord Jesus Christ from coming to his people today. Trouble will not stop him from coming to you and me if we are his people. He cares for us. He sympathizes with us. He loves us. Neither trouble nor sickness nor sorrow, even our own failures or the approach of death or even death itself. I quote again, as I often quote, and I think I did last week, Psalm 23, verse 4. What a comfort that has been to so many people on their deathbed. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And now, sometimes I may say, we get only glimpses of Christ when he comes. And the chapter indicates that to us because uh, the bride is speaking and uh, she tells us the voice of my beloved. She says he's coming, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. And she says, he's like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. And the idea there is just a glimpse. Just a glimpse. The Hidden Writer said, One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. It will be worth it all when we see him. Well, that's speaking of the future state for us of heaven. But just a glimpse of Christ, just a glimpse, and your heart will be warmed, your heart will be blessed, you'll be encouraged, and you will be strengthened. And uh, this glimpse of him looking through the window, standing, as it were, behind the wall, uh, that glimpse uh, will, uh, will indicate he, he's just there. Uh, and he's so close. I, I can almost reach out and touch him. Did you ever feel that way? When you had a very special season of prayer, the Lord came down, you're on your knees, you're pleading, you've started off struggling, you've started off maybe in a deep depression of spirit and you're like a worshipper in the old temple. You started off, we might say, in the court of the Gentiles. Then you've moved into the tabernacle or part of the temple that's for the congregation. Then you've moved into the court of the priests and then you've come by the Spirit of God into the holiest of all. You seem to be in heaven itself. You've been 
You've been, in a way, disappointed when you've come back to earth. Dr. Lloyd-Jones had a situation in his first congregation where he asked a man after a fellowship meeting to close the meeting in prayer. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones says that that man carried the whole congregation right into the presence of God. And they they were touched and blessed. They, They just touched heaven. But when the man closed his prayer, he was disappointed. And he said to Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I had wanted to go from a a special time of prayer like that right into the presence of God and glory. Sometime later, Dr. Lloyd-Jones asked the same man to close the fellowship meeting in prayer. And once more, that man carried them up into the, the throne room of God. He touched the throne. He drew near to the Lord. And everybody felt it. And as soon as the man finished, he collapsed and he was gone. How amazing that was. And there are times when uh, we draw near to God. And what awe. What awe there is. Habakkuk says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him or keep silence before him. There's awe in the presence of God. May I add something more here in this point? While at times Christ appears to be slow to come to us, especially in times of sorrow or distress, that is simply our, our impression, our perception. Because we find Christ likened here, or the bridegroom likened here, to a roe or a young heart. And Dr. Gill says that these animals are well known for their swiftness in running and their agility in leaping. Christ always, always comes at the right time and just when we need him most. That's what he did to the disciples when they were toiling on the Sea of Galilee. That's what he did when he was sleeping in the boat. He, he rose up just at the right time and calmed the storm. And then, of course, the, the idea of Christ there where the bride says, Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountain, skipping upon the hills. He's like a roe or a young heart. There's the element of surprise there. And I believe that our Savior delights to give us surprises. Uh, over in chapter 6 and verses 10 to 12, of this book, uh, we read of the bride. And I think it is the bride, although some uh, think that part of this uh, relates to the bridegroom. She says, I went down into the garden of nuts to see uh, the fruits of the valley and to see whether the vine flourished and the pomegranates budded. And she says, uh, that's verse 11, sorry. Verse 12 says, Or ever I was aware, my soul made me like the chariots of Abinadip. Now, uh, the commentators that I've consulted here, uh, they can't pin down what the reference is to. And they can't even pin down whether it's Christ that's spoken of or his bride, the church, that's spoken of. Uh, I I favor it uh, to be the church. And the chariots of Aminadab were obviously chariots that were driven at uh, great speed. Uh, We read in uh, the life of Elijah and Ahab, of this man who, who drove furiously, Jehu. Well, it seems, and, and the thought in the commentaries is this, that Abinadib was a very fast chariot driver. You know, some people are crazy on the road, uh, racing along. 
Uh, I'm a pensioner and I drive like a pensioner. Uh, so I keep to the speed limit. And I think it's right to do that. But anyway, that's another point, another man's matter. The chariots of Abinadip. She goes down. She's uh, to look at, see how things are going uh, in the garden. And she says, wherever I was aware. Uh, she was like, the chariots of Abinadip. Suddenly she's, she's carried into the presence of her beloved. That often happens. You're seeking the Lord, you're crying to him, and suddenly he comes. That's what happened to John Wesley. On the 24th of May, 1738, he was at a gathering in Aldersgate Street, and someone read Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. And John Wesley could say, and it changed his whole life and his whole demeanor, we might say, my my heart was strangely warmed. That is great. Your heart strangely warmed. The two on the road to Emmaus got a surprise. Did not our heart burn within us? Yes. When the Lord, when his voice is heard, it means that he is very near. And I want to make another point. I'll finish with this. The voice of Christ revives his people. I've noticed with you that it excites us. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh. He has arrived. As I've indicated, a possible uh, variation on that theme. He has arrived. He's here. And then she talks about him uh, uh, hiding, in a sense, behind the wall, and looking through the lattice. Uh, there's joy. There's gladness. But if we follow on, uh, we find in verse 10... Uh, the beloved says to her, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And then right to almost the end of the chapter, uh, he speaks and he says, for lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. It's springtime. And uh, he says, the flowers appear in the earth. The time of the singing of birds has come. The voice of the turtle. Uh, that's the voice of a gentle dove is heard uh, in the land, in our land. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. The vines with a tender grape give us good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. And he speaks tenderly, lovingly to her. So, when Christ speaks like this, he, he, he's inviting and encouraging and exhorting the church because he's very near to be up and doing. His voice stirred Christians, many Christians, in days gone by to noble acts of self-sacrifice. It has led the church to great works of philanthropy and into mighty revivals that have transformed society. I've mentioned some of those at the prayer meeting the other night. The Methodist revival of the 18th century, the transformation uh, of the conditions in the mines and in the workplace, the uh, eventual abolition of slavery, uh, the amelioration of conditions in the prisons, and we could go on and on. And, of course, when you read of flowers and birds singing and fragrance and uh, the depression giving way to joy and defeat giving way to victory, uh, there's fresh vigor in the service of the Master. Yes, what a difference. We hear his voice. He's very near. He speaks to us. We clearly hear his voice. And all the defeat suddenly is at an end. 
We're triumphant. We're jumping in a sense for joy. And uh, there's, uh, there's a different spirit in, in us. There's a different spirit in the services. You, you know, my, my son-in-law, Johnny, he was here. Uh, he, so I always go to their home for dinner on a Sunday. And he might ask, how did you get on today? And I, I, often I used to say there was a very good spirit in the meetings. So now Johnny keeps teasing me. Was there a good spirit in the meetings? So I stopped saying that. Uh, but there is a good spirit in the meetings. When the Lord is near, uh, you, you, you go home exhilarated. What must it have been like for people who listened to George Whitfield? Uh, and uh, sometimes early in the morning he had crowds of forty to 60,000. When he went to Bristol and preached to the colliers, that's the miners coming out of the mines, he knew he was making an impression because their faces were blackened by the coal dust and white streaks coursed down their cheeks as they wept and repented and came to Christ. George Whitfield was a mighty man of God. You read his sermons and you think they're disappointing, but you weren't there. There was a tremendous, tremendous sense of the Lord's power and the Lord's presence. When he came to the end of his life, uh, at, he died in Newburyport in Massachusetts here in the United States. The last words known of, uh, of, uh, of Whitfield's are these. Lord, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. And he spoke, he had spoken earlier to a vast assembly. He was going up the stairs to bed and he preached until the candle had burnt itself out, speaking to the people in the home. He lay down and he did not come back to life. He was gone. And he was in the presence of the Savior that he loved, dead at 55 years of age. But, you know, the presence of the Lord was with him as he proclaimed the word of God. And he went from the presence of God with him into the presence, the actual presence of Christ of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of the holy angels, of the saints of God in glory. What a wonderful thing it is. So we need the Spirit of God to come down and to stir our hearts with love for Christ that we might feel the Saviour's presence. And God gives his Spirit to those who ask and those who obey. I ask you in closing, have you heard the voice of your beloved today? Do you want to hear his voice? Are you listening for it? Are you waiting for it? Are you reading the word of God diligently every day? Seeking God's face every day? Spending time in his presence? And if you know not Christ, he speaks through his word and he invites you. He says, come, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We'll close with a word of prayer. We'll not sing a final hymn. Father in heaven, we pray that thou would apply the truth to all of our hearts. We thank you for the voice of Christ. We can say that there is no voice like the voice of Jesus, tender and sweet its chime, like musical ring of a flowing spring in the bright summer time. O Lord, speak to my heart. Speak to every heart. 
Grant, O Lord, thy hand upon us as we come to the end of the service. We pray that we might know thy grace and thy peace. Spread thy covering wings around us till all our wanderings cease and at our Father's loved abode thy saints arrive in peace. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.